Welcome to the Hello First Name Podcast. The Hello First Name Podcast revolves around the term personalization and is brought to you by marketing author Rasmus Holin, founder of Omnichannel Institute and chief experience officer at the marketing automation software company Agilic. The podcast is based on the book Hello First Name. Each episode is based in turn on a chapter from the book, followed by a discussion of the very same chapter with an expert marketing practitioner in the following episode. As always, you can buy the book on Amazon or other bookstores. You can also choose to listen to it all for free on your favorite podcast service. You're also very welcome to download the abstract of the book for free, and all models, of course, are able to download. All downloads are sponsored by Agilic. I'll make sure to put a link to everything in the show notes. But you can always connect on LinkedIn, and I'll be happy to reply and help out. Hello, and welcome to the Hello First Name podcast slash webinar. Today, we'll be discussing Chapter 5 from the book, namely the chapter called Marketing Without Personalization. So thinking back to a time where maybe personalization was possible, but wasn't as, uh, as normal and as integrated a part of marketing activities, I think that will allow us to get a bit closer to what is personalization actually by sort of trying to extract uh, that from the okay, uh, from the equation. And uh, so in the studio to to help me uh, discuss this, I have uh, no one else but uh, Kim uh, Young Anas and Kim, welcome to the studio and thank you for joining. Thanks, Marcus. You have quite a resume. Uh, I mean, you've been in uh, marketing since uh, forever almost, uh, even though you still look extremely young, which is also your middle name. Uh, and throughout your career, you've been working both for ad and branding agencies, digital agencies, direct marketing agencies even. And I think uh, worth mentioning that you're the man behind several award shows, such as uh, the ever-popular Danish Digital Awards. But uh, in your own words, uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself and uh, your career? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, I've been so fortunate uh, that uh, I've been working, like you're mentioning, uh, in uh, a multiple sort of, uh, of agencies uh, over the years. I've even also uh, been working interim on, on the client side at times. I think that sort of uh, provided me with a, uh, a broad perspective of the many, many facets of marketing and branding and, and not least different types of marketing communications. So I think my take on marketing, you could say, uh, is probably colored a lot by uh, by me having done a lot of different things for different clients and working in many different, you know, uh, product categories and industries over the years. So I, I bring a sort of very holistic perspective to the table, I think. I mean, yeah. I don't know that many people. I, I still get, you know, stamped often as, you know, a madman. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think, you know, that I probably, you know, in recent years, I'm just as much a a math man because now we're working so much with data as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's been a, a continual uh, development over the years. Uh, that has sort of also broadened my own capabilities. I mean, I, I have a, a normal work week when, you know, on a Monday, I can be working on a project, which is basically an IT project. Mm. Uh, and, you know, on a Wednesday, I might be working on doing some kind of, you know, strategic planning for a brand. And on a Friday, I might be down to the uh, nuts and bolts of devising a campaign mm. uh, or uh, working on the, 
uh, UX uh, on on a, on a mobile app or whatever. So I have a really sort of <laughs> Uh, very uh, diverse uh, work week, I would say. <laughs> yeah, which is exactly actually why I I thought you'd be the sort of the ideal pick for for discussing this one because I think it's fair to say that you've experienced marketing from I mean almost uh, all conceivable sides. Hmm. So uh, so the chapter from Hello First Name that we're discussing today is called Marketing Without Personalization. And uh, actually, so so my first question to you would be sort of in your history of working within marketing, when did you first stumble upon the term personalization or put differently, think back to when did we not speak about personalization at all? When was that? I think in the early days, I started my career in sort of the mid-90s, right? Back then, we were, of course, talking about uh, segmentation uh, of different target uh, audiences. And... I think also in the late nineties, we, we began to talk, uh, you know, about at least the vision of doing one-to-one marketing. Uh, and that was sort of within the sphere of what was then called direct marketing, uh, yeah. or dialogue based marketing. Yeah. Permission marketing, exactly. database marketing. And it was actually, it was actually very much based on doing surveys. Yeah. So you had a physical survey uh, schema that you sort of put out to people by physical slow snail mail. <laughs> and then you know for whatever brand then you ask these people about you know uh, you, you ask them certain questions that would sort of give you an idea of uh, who, who are these people what are their preferences what are their attitudes towards the brand and the product offering all these types of things then you would put them in a database Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and from that database, you would then do segmented mail campaigns. And I'm not talking about email campaigns. Back then, it was physical mailings, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's always been there in my career. But personalization, I think, I've, I probably first heard the term, I don't know, eight, seven, eight years ago. Yeah. Because that was when, you know, big tech, especially uh, when we were talking about advertising on so many mm. platforms. It's like, you know, uh, Facebook and so on. When they began to uh, sort of let us personalize uh, advertising at mm. scale, I think that was when I heard it first. It was actually more in the space of, you know, digital advertising than it was in the old sort of direct marketing uh, category. Which is that's actually kind of funny because I've seen a lot of direct marketers looking at advertising and saying that's not real personalization. That's only segmentation or yeah, personalized exactly. advertising is only segmentation. And then, of course, there was the whole sort of, I would almost say, reawakening of the of the CRM discipline. Yeah. Sort of, you know, when, when, when Salesforce became really big and you had also other contenders in that space and we began to really be able to, to sort of uh, do... Uh, segmentation operationally on a large scale, also having many permissions to work with and so on, mm. be able to also couple those, you know, uh, user profiles with actual uh, data from ERP systems like SAP yeah. and so on uh, uh, in terms of, you know, what what uh, are they actually worth these different user profiles in terms of sales and revenue and so on. Uh, then, then, of course, that, that happened sort of in parallel. But I actually think well, I've heard the term personalization the most is, is actually more the advertising space. Yeah, interesting, yeah. And whether that's because you've spent a lot of time there or whether 
it is actually there where it's most prominent. But at least I, I feel the the same way uh, that you do that. that so many different types of marketers are working with it, and they are. Um, and, and no one is wrong necessarily. I think if you're getting your paycheck or if you're sending invoices that says personalization on them, we're not the ones to come and tell you that you uh, that you got it wrong. So I, taking I it off in two volume uh, in terms of you know uh, how 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 much has personalization being how much has that been monetized? Then obviously the big tech players like you know uh, Salesforce, Adobe, Oracle, who have you in that particular space. Of course, project wise, investment wise, those are really big investments, right? But yeah. if you're talking about you know sort of where is the level of monetization the biggest still uh, just look at the revenues that you know uh google and and meta <laughs> are holding oh, yes. <laughs> and and so so by it is still by far the the biggest the biggest uh category right yeah i think you're right all right so it took off maybe what in 2015 16 yeah yeah something like that yeah so i think that's a parallel when, when, I joined the the when, when did you first come came come across uh, this term yeah, that, that's a good question, actually. I don't think I ever asked myself that. Uh, I have a hard time refraining from from talking about... I think it was, it was called different things uh, before that. So we have like behavioral segmentation even uh -huh. or behavioral targeting and triggering. And I think now with the... Uh, like after having done the book, I think that there are actually so many of the terms that we are using and that we have been using interchangeably that I find now to belong to sort of an umbrella term called uh, personalization. So even like uh, even excluding people from certain ads, I would even call that uh, personalization, even though they would never uh, yeah. experience that they were not part of an audience to to be shown an ad in. So uh, so even that, so for me, it's not an either or as much anymore. It's more an idea yeah. of which degree. And I think also coming to discuss today's topic about what is marketing if we take personalization away, I think we'll find that it's actually extremely hard to at this point in time think about how is how is marketing and, and what is left of the traditional marketing if we take away uh, the um i think uh, it depends very much on which industry we find ourselves in oh yes um i think uh, that you know i i work a lot and have been working a lot with uh with the consumer package goods yeah. FCG, uh over the years and 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 for those guys personalization as compared with what you do if let's say you are a b2b brand that yeah. that, that you know is dependent on lead generation and so on um that then the whole fmcg play is still somewhat different of course you also have some fmcg brands uh, 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 Libro Divers comes to yeah, mind. Yeah. High involvement product. Who, who does, you know, these kind Get of food. customer yeah. clubs uh, where they have actual uh, 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 consumer data on the individual level. Yeah. But, but a lot of uh, consumer brands in the FMC space, they don't really work to that level of personalization that you see with, with certain retailers where they mm -hmm. have loyalty programs yeah. and and all, for example, with, with B2B lead generators. I was doing a talk actually at, uh, at Nestle uh, at <laughs> some point, uh, I think half a year ago or something like that. And, and they have uh, many con consumer packaged goods. So for instance, KitKat, and mm -hmm. I find it extremely hard to see how KitKat 
the brand owners, the brand managers there can mm. basically do anything uh, well uh, with personalization, unless mm. you know targeting the the retailers yeah. as opposed to the end customers. Yeah. Whereas exactly. the ones that you say exactly are working with like high involvement products, so mm. that could be like pet food or um, uh, or diapers or anything for, for small kids. Every, everything where there's a high degree of involvement will mm. enable the brands to create a lot of first party data thus being able to fuel those uh, those personalized I think it also depends very much on you know what if you're still in a in a in a, in a play as a brand where you need to increase penetration uh, mm. and you still have a lot of growth potential you of course tend to focus a lot on you know bringing in new customers yeah sure. and um, uh, by definition if they're new to customers, you don't have any prior knowledge necessarily. Exactly. Uh, these yeah. people, uh, if you don't know them. How can we personalize? Right. So, so um, because a lot of the volume generated, sales volume generated uh, among a lot of also very well-known, well-established uh, FMCG brands, uh, a lot of that volume actually comes from you know medium and uh, light users, uh, mm. and that's how you sort of try to increase penetration is to get these to increase frequency buying frequency yeah rather than having you know because a lot of the heavy users i mean you, you can't force feed them any more product no 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 no, no. So, yeah. and 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 that is also why when you have that kind of focus on bringing in a lot of new consumers a lot of new customers then personalization is not really the most effective vehicle for that i totally agree yeah Coming back to that uh, in, in a second, uh, one question before we, we go much more into sort of the marketing without personalization. Just curious to see, because you've, you've come from a very, at least now you're working at a very uh, content-focused uh, place, if, uh, if I can say that. So very much on the content thing. But looking at personalization, do you, would you see that mainly as a data exercise or a content exercise? I think up until now, Rasmus, I think it's been very much a data-driven exercise, very much based also on trigger points in mm. uh, customer lifecycle, uh, where the content itself hasn't been very personalized. It's more personalized to where you are in a certain context yeah. throughout whatever cycle we're talking about, whatever user journey we're talking about. But the content itself is not necessarily that differentiated. It's more based on the event, the trigger event that... Mm who you are as a person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think it's not like marketing automation, we've been able to do that at a very large scale up until now, because now with the help of AI uh, and also using synthetic data for, for doing uh, what well, basically for replicating uh, target audience characteristics, uh, when we can use these uh, synthetic target audiences uh, and, and have an AI copywriter, uh, also do the actual content, not only to the context, but to the actual preferences yeah. and behavior of you as of the individual. individual, then it can begin to scale uh, at a whole different level. I totally agree. Yeah. So up until now, if I look at gener generative AI, I mean, AI in general has helped us for a long time, like yeah. producing insights and numbers and propensity scores and even ranking of products and articles and in the newsfeed yeah. and when you open up Facebook and what is presented to you and what is not. So the, the ranking and the filtering and the sorting of content feeds, that has been there for a long time. But creating the actual creative messaging, yeah. even, I mean, even at a segment uh, level can be... Uh, a lot of extra work and yeah. and that's that's where sort of the i see the law of diminishing returns uh, kicking Absolutely. in 
But now when you can basically brief the generative AI on mm. the full data set of each individual, mm. is that going to, I think that opens up a whole new possibilities. But I'm, I have this fear though, that uh, we could see something like what we're seeing with the self-driving cars, that, uh, that we're almost there and we're almost there for a very long time because what if it hits someone? Or what if we, if the generative AI puts together creative messages that is, you know, yeah. incriminating or provocating or too much or too creepy or whatever? Mm -hmm. how, how do you look I at that? Think you're very right in that, uh, in that position, Rasmus. I, I, I believe that we are right now probably grossly underestimating how much it takes uh, to 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 still make more hits than misses uh, in 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 terms of training these uh, models uh, to actually come out with something that uh, would be as good as and or even better than what a uh, human copywriter would be able to produce. I can tell you uh, that, and I I don't think I'm I'm disclosing anything by saying that that uh, I have been involved in in some experimenting, and and that certainly gave me uh, an insight and also a lesson in <laughs> how much it actually takes yeah. to do this right. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw I saw a, a I think it was like a, a small YouTube video uh, about a team that were putting together a creative ad with the help of generative AI. Yeah. And of course, the generative AI helped them to greatly to put together mm -hmm. fantastic stuff. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it was still an intense amount of work to do all kinds of uh, yeah. uh, generative AI producing the background yeah. and the filters and uh, putting together all kinds of videos and text and images and so on. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't as if it like took the job out of their hands. It just enabled them to take it exactly. so much further than they normally probably would have. To be frank, Osmos, I think maybe for the next three, four, five years, then that's how it's going to 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 uh, to look like. You know, we are going to use AI as an assistant. It's not going to really sort of be a one hundred percent substitute for a lot of uh, the thinking that still needs to go into into creating uh, these uh, different pieces of content. Um, however, we do see uh, some examples, really good examples already out there. I mean, one of the nominated cases for the Institute Award this year was from a real estate broker. Uh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, exactly. I think it was Dan Bowley. Yeah, I think it was. And uh, they had been working together with their agency to actually create an algorithm uh, based on a on a on a, uh, a large language model, which could then, you know, they could brief about you know this piece of property uh, resides in this neighborhood, and you know it has this number of rooms and all these you know factual things. Mm, the properties. And they could on the actually property. go in and pick a uh, target audience. And then get the AI to actually write, uh, you know, some more, uh, what could you call it, lyrical prose, <laughs> yeah, yeah. to, to sort of really describe the, uh, how nice it would be for that audience, uh, particular audience, to live in that neighborhood in that particular house, right? Yeah, that so was quite impressive. Glimpse. I think it, it 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 it's still early days, but it was a glimpse into the future. Mm. All right, let's go into so so in the in the book in Hello First Name, I sort of envision or I made up or constructed this kind of equation where I say that personalization is something that can can add an extra effect or booster to what you're already doing, supposing that what you're already doing is working. So really sort of saying that the value you'd get from personalization would be uh, 
a function of how strong your value proposition is with the with the sort of uh, with the frictions and the the, the upsides and the downsides mm-hmm. of that combined with the the reach that you're able to to get through your communication combined mm-hmm. with with the like the format with which mm-hmm. you're presenting the, like the creativity and also the cost and the downsides mm-hmm. needed to produce that so so zooming a bit in maybe first on the on the on the value proposition part mm-hmm. what what do you see the the power of the value proposition or the how much does the value proposition mean for the potential effect of doing personalization uh, later on I, i think if we take that equation i think that's by far the most contributing factor to the res- result uh, and i think this because uh, that's how you see uh, that 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 people are getting onto whatever you're offering is if they feel that the value proposition is relevant to them to the degree where they feel okay this is really for me mm. then i think that's the that's almost front and center yeah then the other stuff is more matter of execution on how do you actually then present that proposition in a manner yeah. that will you know create breakthrough or, uh, or some kind of uh, cut through um communication wise i think the value proposition is front and center by far the most important uh, variable in that equation uh, also because it's on the value propositions that at least to my beliefs that you should segment uh, or rather the other way around the segments the different segments that you work with different audiences you work with they should actually have a differentiated value proposition that's that's where it's also i think it's the most impactful but it's also the you know that variable where you can in the most meaningful way create a distinction between the audiences mm-hmm. so so to which extent can personalization actually then make it up for a value proposition that a maybe isn't super super strong to which I extent think, can it make I up for that some degree of personalization that is based purely on timing some kind of trigger event uh, i don't know uh, uh you and your wife are having a second child or whatever <laughs> yeah whatever that 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 might lead to i mean that you have these use cases where it's the timing itself that overshadows yeah. almost everything because yeah, certain products become more relevant simply yeah i guess the moment that you see a positive pregnancy test then i mean your life has changed exactly. <laughs> from exactly. one minute to the other these moments of course that can trigger yeah. something that where the timing itself is everything But yeah. on a more sort of day-to-day basis, I think value propositions work stronger. Yeah, yeah. So if you basically what you're saying, if I hear you correctly, is that if your value proposition is broken and you, I mean, you are trying to market something that exactly. isn't as attractive as you think it is, then yeah. basically personalization will not exactly. And not that goes back to something you know which we've known for decades, which is you can have the world's best channel. And media strategy, but mm. if content sucks, <laughs> it will it will not really work for you in which way to have exactly. And the other way around, you can sometimes have the worst, really inoptimal media strategy, but if the idea is so you know provoking uh, and and surprising and engaging, then somehow the idea will find its way out to the audience anyway. Its way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Exactly. Yeah. I think a bit as the same with AI. I'm saying that don't worry if you don't come to AI, AI will come to you. Yeah. Because it's it's there's no stopping a, like a really really strong thing. But talking about the reach, like reach, there's often this like reach versus relevance thing. Do you believe that better personalization means less reach? Uh, no, not necessarily. I mean. Uh, for some time now, I mean, we've we've been using uh, the degree to which we can uh, segment different audiences uh, to create lookalike audiences, and that's mm. a way to increase your reach, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if you, because often I would get the idea that also when talking to people that, because I believe you can also get in a position where you are narrow casting too much. So yes. I've, I've seen a lot of, especially CRM people. Yeah. Uh, so on the one hand, they're sending out like super generic newsletters five days a week or three days a week or whatever. And then when it comes to doing the like the more personalized and even the automated, more customer lifecycle orange communications, they tend to sort of really go totally in the other side of the spectrum saying, okay, but now we want to be relevant. So they're suddenly cooking up 18 different parameters and wanting to parameterize and personalize every single part of the customer journey. So they end up with an audience of like too few people. A thing such as exaggerated personalization. Um, Also because when you reach a certain level of personalization, then like you mentioned in the beginning, uh, then you definitely will get diminished returns. Mm. Uh, that's where sort of the, uh, the natural laws apply still. <laughs> yeah, especially if you have to produce it manually. Yeah, uh, there's there's the production part where you suddenly get a uh, non-working spend that is way too high uh, compared with the actual returns. But there's also the mere fact that, yes, we are different as human beings, but we're not that different. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. of course, uh, we live in different situations and we can and should segment uh, based on, you know, what type of person you are in different situations. But a lot of what drives actual behavior are based in common human instincts. Yeah. Yeah. I'm exploring in actually in the in the last uh, uh, last chapter of the, of the last uh, webinar, we, I was discussing this with Matt Johnson, who is a neuroscientist. Hmm. And he was very much into sort of this idea of what is it that drives us fundamentally as humans, which I think relates very closely to what you're saying there. Um, I was thinking about whether you could come up because we were, we were I kind of promised that we'd be looking at personalization from the outside here. So maybe some thoughts from you uh, also with your broad experience as to what are the use cases where you would find personalization useless or maybe just not worth the, the trouble? I think that if you're going, I mean, the basis actually, and that that's also you know important to understand. I think the basis for any type of really effective personalization also often comes from the fact that you have a very well defined brand positioning as a as an overall platform mm. that that works as a springboard for whatever segment you're trying to address, whatever audience you're trying to uh, to address. So you have actually a foundation, you have a fixed point that you can basically work from. And I think when you're trying to establish, for example, a new brand positioning, it could be a revitalized one from an existing brand. It could be also trying to create an all new brand. Mm. I think when you're in that phase, then personalization doesn't really make that much sense because then it's really a matter of building the brand. 
Yeah. And then you're creating demand, demand on the brand, talk about yourself. Common themes on common ground, you can say, and sort of, you know, uh, assemble your tribe, your brand tribe. Yeah. Then you can begin to look at the individual tribe members, or if there are some, you know, differences that could be, uh, that would 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 have some gains in in actually you know, pulling those uh, a little bit more apart, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, I think it's a very interesting interesting topic because if you, I guess, if you if you don't have a customer database and you don't have any first party data, yeah. you should start by defining who you are and what is your general value proposition and and. I mean, how would you personalize that if you don't know who you're talking to? So really, at the beginning of sort of a, a company life cycle, you have to start yeah. talking about yourself and why you think there's a, a product market fit for you. Yeah. And if that doesn't resonate, what's the point yeah. in, in personalizing how you tell it? I mean, you can take a retailer like Imerco, uh, who Kitchenware retailer, been 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 uh, working with uh, also on a common project, right, uh, some years back. Yeah. I mean, Imerco obviously uh, has a large customer base. Uh, they have a lot of uh, data also on the individual customers in that base. And of course, they can do some kind of per some degree of personalization. They already do. And they mm -hmm. are still, I guess, working on the uh, Agilic platform. Yeah, sure. Let's say that they wanted for whatever reason to revitalize their brand and revise basically also their positioning. You wouldn't then begin to say, okay, uh, how should we then do a new positioning by starting with breaking it up <laughs> into different interpretations to 20 different segments. Yeah. That would be crazy, right? Yeah. So so it, it's it's just I'm saying that of course when that you know new positioning then ha has been achieved, then you can begin to work from there mm. again. Mm. But you wouldn't do it uh, in actually recreating or building uh, the new uh, positioning. Yeah, so the core story is the core story, exactly. no matter who you're talking exactly. to. Exactly. And I think, in fact, that's a little bit of a fallacy that I see happening out there sometimes is that some brands uh, and some organizations are actually trying to, from from almost the get-go, to look at the brand from too many perspectives at once, whereas there's a strong brand, in my mind, is based on one universal human insight. Yeah. And then, because I guess that, I mean, let's let's take a Imerco kitchen kitchenware retailer. I guess that Imerco could mean different things to different audiences. Let's, I mean, so I guess someone would be looking at Imerco and saying, okay, these are the this is the brand that is helping me uh, lay the perfect table for a, yes. a romantic dinner or whatever. Whereas other would be looking them at them and saying, okay, this is the retailer that helps me, you know. Uh, put, goods uh, in my kitchen drawers and stock up on practicalities and make sure I can squeeze whatever fruit that I get in the vicinity of. And now that you're mentioning those types of uh, how perceptions, right? Uh, then, you know, when you ask people directly, then they will also, they will, they will tend to define sort of the brand conception by some functional needs like you've just mentioned. Yeah. And, and that is all good because that you can use for later segmentation. Mm. But in building the brand or you know, uh, refining the brand or whatever, then you need to build the emotional bond to the brand itself and not to the product categories or the actual uses of the brand and so on. Then you need to have a brand built on some kind of emotional affinity. Mm. That means you have to define what does the brand stand for across all these different yeah. use cases. What and are the common denominators? Because the common denominator is what makes you appeal to so many different segments that you can build a volume business. Right. And, and, and for example, in a small country, as in Denmark, is 
then like you know like our founder once said yeah we were Dugan partners to begin with if you want to become a really big brand in Denmark then you start by acknowledging the fact that you have basically all the Danish population <laughs> as a target audience and yeah. then you can begin of course to work with segmentation from there but you need yeah. to if you really want to become big big in Denmark uh, a country with only six million people, then you basically need to have some kind of offering or differentiated value proposition that appeals to, you know, whoever out there. <laughs> I'd like to think that sort of the, the Nordic companies and the sort of limited uh, audiences that we have in the limited populations, that yeah. working with, I guess, both branding, but especially personalization and segmentation, that somehow that forces us to be extremely sharp and efficient because if we're not, then simply it isn't worth the trouble. Yeah. Yes, and I, I believe you're right. Uh, I mean, you can take some of the most famous retailers coming out of the Nordics ever. Uh, I think, still think they sort of set the golden bar for many. IKEA, uh, Hensen Mauritz, both Swedish. I mean, obviously, they uh, appeal to many different segments. I mean, that's what makes them so strong because yeah. I mean, it's both poor and rich and if, everyone in between, basically. Yeah. Yeah, super broad. I mean, it's not that that because they have a a, a, a value for money uh, proposition uh, that that makes uh, only you know uh, people looking for a good deal going into an IKEA or on Hennes Mauritz. I mean, you also have very affluent people <laughs> actually buying stuff there, hmm. uh, and 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 that's just to say that it's because it has a very broad emotional brand appeal overall. And then from there you can begin to you know target your communications to specific segments with different mm-hmm. with, with specific value propositions and offers. But it will always work better if you have the really big broad base level positioning to begin with. But don't you think that then when taking these these brands, let's let's take H and M for instance, and you take them abroad, I think you could say the same for uh, for for Tiger. Uh-huh. Uh, that a uh, target of Copenhagen. That if you take these brands and then you take them to other markets, uh-huh. they'll be looking at them as you know not something that has totally broad appeal, but has a very large appeal to people who are into what Scandinavian design or Scandinavian uh-huh. style. Or uh-huh. so they'll be looking at the people who will be choosing to buy the clothes from H and M in Spain will yeah. be the ones who are really into sort of a Scandinavian style. Yeah, so that's, that's the really interesting, right? That that that. You know, one thing is the perception that you built based on your home market. It often changes as you move out into the world and and yeah. and, and and get uh, and get internet uh, get get a more international audience going for you. And then you have to think more globally because I do think that if you take, for example, S and M, then you know, it's one thing is the pricing. Obviously, that is attractive, but it is actually also because. Like with Sarah and 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 similar uh, um, brands, it, it's it's part of a fashion uh, industry, and it's it's also where you can buy stuff and mix it together with other uh, clothing. Where you can, it does. If it's an M, it's just as much fashion. It's just not just a, 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 a clothing company uh, uh, selling at low prices. And the same with IKEA. Mm. IKEA has also a design appeal to it that, exactly. that goes far beyond just the matter of 
you know, okay, you buy uh, and, and haul the stuff away in flat boxes at low prices. <laughs> it's yeah, exactly. Yeah. Deal, right. But, but, you know, to many people in, in I've come across in foreign markets, it's actually what you mentioned, the Scandinavian design appeal, the minimalism and so yeah, on. I think it's fancy. Makes it work. Yeah. And, and, and that also just goes to show that, um, yes, personalization is definitely also part of how they have built their marketing operations. I mean, mm. both you and I know they have very, very big marketing operations around oh, yeah. Really, yeah. Uh, personalized uh, uh, um, uh, platforms. But they still come from what you have called the, the common denominator and, and there is some strong uh, emotional appeal uh, that, that, that is drawing people in to begin with. And, and that is, I think, just so important to remember that I think you could look at it like this. When you're building a brand or redefining a brand, repositioning brand, then personalization is not that relevant because then yeah. it's about creating, you know, volume, uh, appeal, high penetration, uh, building basically also a huge audience. When you have that huge audience, then you can begin from that fixed point of departure to then segment and personalize your communications and mm. your offerings. But it doesn't really make sense to do that on before you have accumulated uh, yeah, exactly. enough mass, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. And the other, I mean, this is the old, uh, old story about should you sort of should you fill up the top <laughs> uh. before uh, fixing the the bottom, or should you? I mean, should you start by making sure that everything is personalized and then start <laughs> filling up the top yeah. with the? With I think if you're trying to do the last uh, thing, then it'll be a very very long, hard, and expensive journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I I must agree. So coming back to creativity, we're talking about like Nordic design and Nordic creativity. We also talked about personalization, whether it be a, like a more data exercise or more creative exercise. I mean, from from your uh, expertise and your background and, and what you've seen, I'm thinking especially also here about all the, the cases that you're reviewing for Danish Digital Awards. Yeah. Yeah. To which degree do you believe that companies remember the creativity and being in creative in the communication also when they're working with personalization? I think it's, to be quite honest, uh, and maybe I'm sounding harsh, <laughs> I think maybe there's also a reason to, to me sounding maybe a little harsh. Maybe it's fair harsh. to be harsh. <laughs> is, is, is that I think if you look at direct communications today, uh, targeted communications today, unless it's, it's very much in the advertising space, uh, mm. uh, but it's also both advertising and also direct communications via email and so on. I think, I think the level of creativity is shockingly low. <laughs> I mean, it, it's. I mean, it's. To be quite honest, I think ninety percent or even ninety-five percent is is just shit. It's absolutely <laughs> bollocks. I mean, oh, I hate it, but I agree. It's. It's. It, I mean, I, I get so many emails because, of course, also from uh, well-established brands and marketers, because I, of course I try to, you know, I have to have. Uh, my finger on the pulse of what's happening, what's the level out there of different types of communication. So I subscribe to a lot of different. Yeah, me too. And and when I look at my inbox, and I know I have to go through it because from a professional point of view, I need to review what's going out, out there, and I need to have a kind of impression on uh, how does uh, things look and feel like. Then it's like it's it's like you know it's not a task that I'm looking forward to. So when I'm sitting down on Sunday and, and trying to catch up and, and looking at 20 different <laughs> newsletters, it's like, 
<laughs> but why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Why do you think the level of creativity is so poor? So poor? I mean, I have my sort of theory, but I'm curious to hear yours. I think there are, I think there are two different reasons. One is that if you have enough people subscribing to a newsletter or enough people being reached by your Sony advertising or whatever, then the sheer volume can make up for quality a lot of times. So you just being very, you know, pushy, uh, being there, pushing, in your face, mm. uh, always there, that that will generate results, that will create results. That is one thing. So, so sometimes quantity compensates for quality. Mm. The other thing is a little bit more sad, and that is that the whole direct discipline has always been sort of that I know a few masterminds, really creative masterminds that have done tremendous work in the direct space. However, they are very much the exception that <laughs> confirms the overall rule that the you know the best creatives they want on things, they want to work on things that get famous. Yeah. That works in on a big canvas that reaches a lot of people. So they can go to Cannes and win yes, awards. For example, also that. But it's just what, what motivates them. So, yes. so there's been also a lack of stellar creatives working mm. with, for example, uh, here's our newsletter. Uh, how could yeah. that be the most interesting newsletter in the world? Yeah. So that means that often that work is relegated to, yeah, either creatives that didn't, make it <laughs> in the, in, on the big scene of, of, of creative advertising or it gets in-house and then it becomes more workmanlike. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I have, an, have another theory, however, and I'm curious to see how you, what do you think of that? I'm thinking that yeah. because of the like digital revolution and digital transformation and such has left, left us with so many data points and data sources and bringing those together for the sake of actually doing some kind of personalization uh, mm. on those uh, data points has been uh, and still is uh, a huge data exercise. Yeah. So the people who have been responsible for working with personalization up until now, those are the data people. Mm. And now I wouldn't say that they're done necessarily, but they're like a, 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 the advent of a, of a tech category such as customer data platforms. And I mean, it's much easier to harness and put together your customer data into a golden customer record now than it has mm. been ever before. But these people are still in charge. So yeah. when it then comes to the content and the execution yeah. charge, you have the data people yeah. looking in and do the quality assurance on, on whether uh, email is appropriate or whether that's creative yeah. enough. And they simply don't have the the mind and the view. You're very, very right that the people who are often now uh, leading uh, the uh, magazine uh, programs that uh, is about personalization to whatever degree, I think those people often have a professional profile where they haven't, you know, necessarily been used to to buying creative work uh, or to reviewing or evaluating creative work. Uh, so they see it more like just content. Yeah. Okay, yeah, exactly. uh, this is Someone a person who uh, found out through our data that this person has these needs. He, he or she has these needs at this point in time. Yeah. Uh, then we should uh, send this person this uh -huh, offering. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and everything that tries to make that interesting is just noise to them. <laughs>
Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. I'm. I'm. Uh, I hope that we get to see yeah. uh, a change in that. Mm. Uh, at least uh, I'm trying uh, to push it also with the with the book uh, and uh, profiting from personalization in Hello First Name. I, I Talking about this, I, this uh, I mean, there's a reason for the the content part of the bow tie to be equally big yeah. uh, as the as the inside part. Absolutely, of the because because I do think that the the, the creative design and 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 the creative uh, ideation when it comes to a lot of direct communications today. And that actually also goes not just we're talking email marketing, but also so many advertising. I, I, I think a lot of that hinges on um, that, you know, if we take your equation, mm. if there could be another factor that could really create multiples, then it would be the strength of the idea. Yeah. And, and, and right now, it's a little. I, think I labeled that within format. I'm yeah, sure. within the format. Yeah. So the format definitely needs to be strengthened, right? Because right now, I think ninety percent of all direct communications that I receive in one format or another, yeah, is much more reliant upon the right timing and context than the actual content. But thinking back to the old direct marketing days. I think there was actually a lot of creativity in that. One of the most creative disciplines. To get people to open the envelope and look at whatever. Agencies making a ton of money and winning a lot of awards, actually. Because back then when you could do physical DM packages to keep, you could go crazy. I mean, some of the most interesting advertising back then was direct advertising. There's still uh, this uh, agency, I can't remember what it's called, it's in New Zealand, uh, I think it's mm-hmm. in New Zealand. They still win a ton of uh, creative prizes each year, uh, also in Cannes. And they have always been this amazingly creative direct agency. Yeah. But it's very much because they insist on still working in the physical space. And yeah. as we've moved so much comms into the digital, into the online space, I think it's actually a little bit weird to me why more agencies, more marketeers haven't actually thought about you know, that leaves a big vacuum in the physical Huge, yeah. to do some really amazing stuff. And and I think many more marketers, especially B2B and so on, should try and take a hard look at, yes, it costs a lot less money on on sort of the upside to do a digital program based on, for example, emails and so on. Yeah. But if you look at the actual effect of what you could have gotten from, let's say you send out 100,000 emails Maybe if you just send out a thousand of physical DM packages, real, real, real high uh, level of of creativity, maybe your closing rates would then actually mean that you would get more customers out of the thousand packages than the 100,000 emails. It would get noted for sure, because I mean, it's not every day that I get something physical in my... never get anything by by snail mail anymore, basically. All right. Uh, coming back to sort of the value uh, on personalization, uh, do you believe that sort of the value that you create from personalization is that mainly like short-term conversion value, or is it more long-term customer lifetime value for brands? How do you see the balance? It can be both, depending on how you've designed your your personalization program, right? I mean, obviously, a lot of what happens in in the personalization space is very very tactical, so that's mm. obviously focused on the short-term result. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is promotion driven because yeah. it's designed to help uh, increase sales. Uh, this next week. best offer as opposed to next best exactly. experience. But then, of course, if you begin to really work with your individual customer uh, on the longer term, 
really beginning to understand that customer better and better uh, and also improving uh, the whole customer experience for that customer, the customer experience that, that goes beyond just giving uh, a good promotion. <laughs> yeah. Then I think it can also have some, some far-reaching uh, consequences uh, in a positive way, right? But I just don't see, to be quite honest, I don't see many marketeers work with uh, sort of the, the long game. No, sadly. And I, th I'm, I'm, I think I would. So if this is the customer journey and there are sort of multiple moments yeah. of truth in that, and some of them are related to conversions and your company and so on, and some yeah. of them are related to the customer journey where they could use some help. Hmm. I think probably what is most natural is to start going with the ones where you could make money first and then gradually start. I think, but, but for every two of the commercial conversion oriented one, I think you should do at least one that is more for the customer and not necessarily asking for anything or it's trying to get something. But just dilemma. Um, it, it's, it's the same sort of two-sided um, argument that, that you see between, you know, how much should we spend on branding versus uh, marketing totally. activation stuff, right? It's the same thing here. If if you really have a lot of companies, most companies they are so sales driven, yeah. That you know, for you to get, um, let's say that you have this this actually a great idea for a program uh, that would likely give you even more loyal customers uh, in the long run, and let's say that basically costs the same maybe even more to build over the years yeah. from your short-term promotions than to get that grant to go <laughs> ahead yeah. and do that investment yeah. as compared with, you know, but, you know, if we just stick with what we've got, then at least we know that we'll have these results also next month and in the next quarter. It's, it's just very difficult. I've seen an example, though, that I think that's probably worth mentioning. So yeah. I was speaking to Gibson Biddle, mm -hmm. he's the former VP of product uh, from Netflix. I spoke with him uh, at a conference and he was uh, talking about this choice they had to make where people are on their, you know, on the trial subscription mm -hmm. and the date for the first payment comes. Mm -hmm. So should they sort of take the high road and let people know that we're going to take money from your card very soon? knowing that some people would find that as a reminder to mm. as a reminder to actually terminate their subscription and not mm. give the money and thus netflix would not get this i think it was like mm. uh, accumulates like a few billion a few millions of dollars so so not a very small amount or should they take take the high road remind these people knowing that some would cancel and they wouldn't get the money but the impression that it would leave with the ones that actually were interested in keeping their subscription would make them seem extremely trustful and considerate and you know if you don't if you don't taking advantage of the services we'd actually rather not have you pay and they chose the high road for this actually yeah. and you couldn't really measure so this was this was from a, like a very strong belief that this would benefit them in the long term i think that's a pretty bold move it is but i also think it's the right move because then they make sure that the customers that they do keep on board that they are the most profitable customers in the exactly. long run. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I've been, you know, a customer with the same uh, optimization uh, for I don't know, uh, thirty-five years or something like that. <laughs> I must be one of the oldest customers. Oh, it cannot be that long. Sunapchiki in Denmark, right? And what puzzles me is a 
They've known me for 35 years. They still keep sending me offers each week on glasses that I can't use because I have such a bad vision that I cannot use those glasses. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's almost offensive to get offers where you haven't got a slightest chance to actually, you know, redeem them. <laughs> There's one thing. Then I actually, in in you know, because I got actually kind of angry with them at a certain yeah. point, tried to then uh, say, okay, then I don't want uh, my sub subscription with you guys anymore. And then they give me, because I want to leave, then they give me the subscription, you know, at almost uh, one third of the price for 12 months yeah. for me not to leave. And I was almost like, you know, okay, then I'll certainly leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a pretty, I mean, it all, I, I have this term I call the subject matter related depression. Mm. So when I feel that brands are really, really under delivering on fairly obvious use cases for mm for choosing the right path and for doing personalization and treating you as an individual, yeah. making you feel seen, uh, seen and heard and such. Mm. That's just no, not but but it's also because they reveal themselves as a brand of what they actually think of me. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm only something worth if I'm trying to leave your, you know, if I'm trying to, to, to cut off your business and, and, and then it's called win back, but shouldn't you have, you know, won, you me, won me back long ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, taking it from the, the low note, maybe to the, the conclusive uh, uh, high note here, what is your favorite example of personalization that uh, you've experienced uh, as a customer? So the favorite, not the worst. I think maybe that was what we just had. Yeah. But what is the worst example? that uh, The best example, favorite yeah, example. I don't even think that is sort of personalization in, in its real sense, but, um, but in terms of direct messaging, and in terms of direct messaging, that actually really builds, to me, huge brand value. It's an example I've often used. Uh, they are also actually won that year in DDA. It's the, it's the Telco tree. Hmm? I mean, it's not like they have a terrific, uh, um, you know, uh, when you go abroad with tree like home, it's not like, you know, the telcos that you get connected to are sort of offering world-class service in terms of coverage. Not necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> However, the, the fact that when I get home, uh, and I, just, I was just, uh, you know, um, traveling far, uh, not that long ago, then you get an e uh, SMS saying, hey, you actually just saved several thousand yeah. uh, Danish kroner. <laughs> Because you can you can roam and it's part of your subscription and this is what you would have otherwise have paid exactly. if we and didn't I, have that. That's just a genius move because I mean uh, it just sticks with me to the degree when yeah. I'm being called upon by all kinds of telcos that want to take over my subscription. Mm. I think I get a call like every other week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just always you know I don't even want to hear what you have to say because yeah, yeah. I'm so happy with uh, what gives you that uh, not in the market exactly. kind of feeling. Yeah. All right. Brilliant. I think we, uh, we've already uh, talked for, I think, 53 minutes, uh, Kim, and I feel that we could go on and perhaps we should, uh, but maybe not on this podcast. <laughs> so, uh, so I'd like to say uh, thank you very much uh, for joining and uh, to, uh, to all the listeners that are listening in on this. I would remind you that uh, we're doing this uh, every week, uh, that there, there's either an audiobook chapter coming or there is a discussion uh, like this. Uh, and uh, all the models from the book uh, can be downloaded. Uh, I'll put the, the link to that in the show notes. You can also download a free abstract uh, of the book. 
Uh, I'll put the link to that as well. And of course, you can find it on Amazon or your, your local bookstore. Just uh, Google Hello First Name and it uh, should uh, pop up. So uh, without any further ado, thank you very much for listening. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening in on this episode of Hello First Name. Remember that all models and even a written abstract of the book are available for download. You'll find the link in the show notes. In our next episode, which is a classical audiobook chapter, we'll be moving into the core of the book Hello First Name and the practitioner's model for personalization called the bow tie of personalization, which just happens to also be the name of the chapter.